my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I'm with author Sherry Mitchell. She was born and raised on the Penobscot Indian Reservation. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Maine and received her Juris Doctorate and a Certificate in Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy from the University of Arizona's James E. Rogers College of Law. Mitchell is an alumna of the American Indian Ambassador Program and the UDAL Native American Congressional Internship Program. She is a long-time advisor to the American Indian Institute's Healing the Future Program and currently serves as an advisor to the Indigenous Elders and Medicine People's Council of North and South America. Mitchell served as a law clerk to the solicitor of the United States Department of the Interior, and she speaks and teaches around the world on issues of Indigenous rights, environmental justice, and spiritual change. I'm holding in my hands her latest book called Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. Welcome, Sherry Mitchell, and um, I will ask you if you would kindly say your name in your language. My name in my language is Wanahamukwasit. It means she who brings the light. And my family is Bear Clan from the Penobscot Nation and Crow Clan from the Passamaquoddy tribe at Zubayak. And it's a great honor to be able to be here with you today and to have this conversation. So thank you for having me. And uh, great gratitude to you for being with us. You say in the beginning of your book that everything is a song, a vibration. And so I would love it if you would intertwine talking about the name that was given you and the the understanding that we live in a song, that we are vibrations together. Mm. Yeah, I think that there's no separating ourselves from the truth of that statement. We live in a vibratory universe and everything that we speak, everything that we think, every action that we take 
sets forth ripples within that vibratory frequency that creates and paints the reality that we're currently living in. So when we are born in my community, uh, in my tribal community, we're given a name initially by our families, and that that name is um, is to set the pathway for whatever movement you'll take for the beginning of your days. And so the name that I was given by my family when I was born is Zaliwasa's Pizazm, which means a new traveling star. Uh, so that's a, a star that's born and that travels across the sky. And that name um, did truly set the pathway for me to go out into the world and to experience things that led to the second name that I was given when I reached full adulthood, which is Wanahamugwasit. Uh, and that name was given to me by the spiritual elders in my community. And when they offer you a name, a spirit name, as an adult, uh, you can choose whether or not you want to accept that name because it carries certain responsibilities with it. And so when we're talking about vibrational frequency, there's a specific pathway, a specific frequency that is intoned within the name that you carry. And with this particular name, Wanahamugwasit, um, the aspect of bringing the light is about going down below the surface and bringing hidden truths up and sharing them with others, taking things that might seem shadowed or distorted and helping to clarify them so that others can understand them. Um, also, she carries uh, the responsibility of chasing the sun down into the darkness and back up into the sky at dawn. Our people are Chwabanaki, uh, uh, that is the light that appears just before the sun breaks the surface in the morning, that first light. We are the people of that first light, and so um, with Wanahamugwasa's job of bringing that first light back up into the sky, it's helping to illuminate the world for the people who inhabit that place. And so um, when I decided to accept that name, I had to accept living a specific way of life that was aligned with truth, was aligned with um, what we call Skijinawebamalsawagin, which is the indigenous way of life. It's about living our lives in harmonious, balanced relationship with the rest of creation. And so we refer to ourselves as um, Skijinoi people, which means native people. And um, ski is the surface. Uh, uh, I mean, the people, ski is the people. Uh, Skijinoi is the surface, or Skijin is the surface, and, and Skijinoi is the the people of the surface, the people who live on the surface of the earth. So when we define ourselves as Gijinaway people, we're defining ourselves in relationship to the earth. And so when you agree to walk this specific way of life, you have to do so with honor and respect and a sense of responsibility for the well-being of the rest of life. And, um, you know, the aspects of, of the name that are contained, um, within that understanding of that way of life have to be lived and have to become um, a model for others who are coming up behind you so the younger generations are always watching us. So we have to walk a certain way upon the earth and live our lives in a certain way 
in order to provide them with the guidance and the pathway that they can follow so that they can continue that long relationship that our people have had with this place, with uh, Mother Earth and the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. Would you talk to us about the river you grew up with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the river that I grew up with is uh, also Penobscot. Uh, the anglicized version of that is Penobscot. The land that I lived on was also Penobscot, and the people are also Penobscot. And so my tribe uh, has, for land base, 200 rivers in the Penobscot. I mean, excuse me, 200 islands within the mm-hmm. Penobscot River. And so our lives are surrounded by this nourishing, life-sustaining, life-giving water. And so we have a very deep relationship with the land and the waters that we inhabit. And the um, fact that our name, the name of the place, and the name of the waters are exactly the same informs us that there is no separation between us, that we are all one, we're indistinguishable from one another recognizing that we all come from the same foundational elements that create life and that we're all dependent on one another for the continuation of that life. And it's the largest body of water in the state of Maine, largest freshwater body of water in the state of Maine, and it sustains an ecosystem that runs through the entire center of the state. What's the name uh, Penobscot? Is it, is it a translation or is it an adaptation, and does it feel, that, again, I'm thinking about language, does it feel right to you? Well, it is an adaptation. It's, it's an anglicized version of the traditional word for, for who we are, and it's actually descriptive. Panawabskwi, uh, the people, Yes. Uh, we we are the people who live where the river widens and where the white rocks come out of the water. And so, you know, the connection to place, that instructive relational element of of how we connect and where we connect within this larger realm of space that we occupy here is is kind of lost in the translation. One of the things that is difficult. I'm actually working on an article right now talking about indigenous oral traditions Mm -hmm. and the sacred science of sound, that our language possesses these relational instructional elements that tell us how to live uh, in relationship with the lands that we occupy, the waters that we are surrounded by, and with the other living beings that live within creation. And so we're in the process of decolonizing our own language because so many of the things that have been captured over time and passed forward have gone through the lens of white male scholars and missionaries. And they stripped away those relational and instructive elements and made the language kind of flat and functional. And so we're restoring... um, much of our language in a way that brings back that feminine, mothering, instructional, and relational teaching that the language has been missing for so many years. So we try to talk about ourselves and about where we come from in our own language, 
uh, because there's a vibrational frequency in that that's connected to this land. Uh, the language of our people has been spoken on this land for about 13,000 years. So the land understands us when we speak. We have this long relationship with one another. And when we speak in another language, it's hard for the land to understand what it is that we're saying. So it, it you know, provides this disruption to our long relationship. So we're trying to restore our language and in doing so restore our relationships with the lands and the waters and the sense of closeness and connection that we have to the rest of the living beings who share this space with us. In your view, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I keep wondering about this. I, I speak several languages and I keep wondering how, in your view, how did languages uh, emerge into people's bodies? Is it in relationship with the earth that we live on or live with? I think that there's many ways. I'm certainly not a, a scholar of linguistics, um, but I think that there are many ways that language emerged. And so when we look at all of the wisdom traditions from all over the world, and it's not any different within our original teachings, that it was sound. It was a sound vibration, mm. or the word, or the voice of God, or, you know, however people frame it, but it was sound that actually started to manifest the world in which we live. It was sound that's credited with creating um, the entire universe. And so when we think about that origin of our being, being connected to sound, it seems like it's a natural um, unfolding for us to utilize sound to continue to create within our own lives. And so the emergence of language oftentimes mimicked the sounds of the natural world. Our names for things are connected to um, what we see and what we hear and, and how those things imprint within us. Mm -hmm. Our sounds for them become a reflection of that. And so it's almost like we're reaching out to relate to, to connect to, uh, to be able to uh, find some commonality with the things in the world that we're resonating with or um, we find to be really vital to our way of being or our well-being. And when I think about sound mm -hmm. in relation to my own language, when I think about the way that we um, speak to one another, speak about the rest of creation, there's an honoring and a reverence within that for that origin of life, that initial sound that created all living things. And, you know, in our language, there's no word for the, T-H-E. Mm -hmm. That word does not exist in our language because it's, uh, it's an objectification. Right. So if we were to say the sun or the moon, uh, we don't say that. We talk about the one who walks across the sky during the day and the one who walks across the sky during the night. We recognize their active role within this unfolding creation that we're all a part of. And we recognize, you know, aspects of them rather than objectifying them as being something other. Mm -hmm. We talk about, you know, how we view them what our relationship is with them, and then, you know, the one who walks across the sky during the day, who 
it brings us the opportunity to grow food, to be warm, to warm our bodies. You know, all of those words that flow out of that descriptive element of this being who shares the sky um, with us, shares the light with us, and also the, you know, the one that walks across the sky during the night, and what are the other aspects of that that are connected to our ability to be able to see at night, to move the waters within us in harmony with the waters moving throughout the rest of the earth, tying us all together in the same sacred movement and recognizing those things uh, not only in our daily lives but within our ceremonies and in relationship to our understanding of our connectivity to the rest of creation. Might it be possible that colonization is the story of objectification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's part of the original sin. You know, we often joke as um, in this territory and, and possibly in others that we were never kicked out of the garden. And so um, in my mind, that whole concept of being kicked out of the garden that whole religious concept mm-hmm. of Adam and Eve seeing themselves as other is really a descriptive um, story about this original sin, which was the idea of otherness, the idea of separation yes. from the rest of creation. I have to hide myself because I am no longer seeing myself as being at one with the rest of creation. I see myself as something different, as something distinct and unattached. And so when when I think about colonization, I think that the root of colonization is that illusion of separation, that initial othering that occurred that made some people believe that they were different, distinct, unattached, disconnected, superior, entitled in some way over the rest of the natural world and over other human beings that that is really at the heart of colonization is that othering. And so when we talk about objectification, that othering is also at the heart of that. It sees sees us as being separate from, different from, distinct from, in some measurable way that impacts our level of importance within the rest of creation, which of course is all an illusion. It seems like... um in this uh, in this modern world it's been at least for me a process of becoming becoming aware of being part of rather than seeing everything as objects different from mm-hmm. and, and we ha- yeah we have stories that a lot of people have heard these kind of cliched or stereotypical quotes about related to the web of life. There are often web of life quotes associated with different historic chiefs from North America. And one of the things that has often been a little bit disheartening to me is that the wisdom tradition held in the indigenous way of being has never taken its rightful place amongst the other wisdom traditions. So the way of life that's outlined by that tradition 
has never been given a place of honor within the larger scope of society. And so when people see those Web of Life quotes, they think, well, oh, isn't that nice, you know, to think about we're all connected, you know, and they think about that in a very superficial way. But what the ancestors understood, what our teachings tell us, is that what really is meant by these Web of Life teachings is an understanding of a foundational principle of the universe and the structure of the universe. What it's teaching us is about quantum entanglement, which is what science is just discovering now, that any matter that has once been connected physically can never be disconnected spiritually or energetically. And so when we talk, talk about these Web of Life understandings, What we're talking about is understanding on a very deep level that we are energetically and spiritually connected, not only through this specific time and space, but through all time, since the very beginning, when the seed of life was first intact before it exploded and traveled across the universe, creating all life. And so we understand that we were once all connected physically, and therefore we can never be disconnected spiritually or energetically. So one way to think about that is to think about a phantom limb. So when somebody has their leg amputated, sometimes their foot still itches, even though the foot is no longer there. That's the same concept, that once that matter that made up the leg was connected physically, to that being, it can never be disconnected spiritually or energetically. So the foot still itches because there's still a spiritual and energetic connection to the matter that made up the leg. And so when we start understanding that we are connected in those same ways throughout the entire history since the beginning of life, we start to understand the traumatic imprints that we all carry in our body from our shared history of violence from this collective unfolding of the evolution of our consciousness. And so we start thinking about rates of anxiety and depression within the in, in the society, one in three people on both scales yes. across the planet are impacted by that. For someone who comes from a population that has known historical trauma, it's easy for them to name that trauma to understand how it's unfolding in their lives. For those who don't have such easy access to that understanding and that knowledge, this anxiety and this depression doesn't make sense to them. They can't name the trauma that they're feeling and experiencing in their body. They can't name the cause of the anxiety that they're feeling because they don't understand that the entire creation is connected energetically and spiritually. So we're carrying all of those imprints of the entire history of life in some ways within our bodies and that they're triggered by certain things that are going on in the society around us. And so when we start understanding the depth of our connectivity, it makes sense to us that we are feeling the distress of the planet. We are feeling the trauma of those who are in war zones, who are struggling to survive, who lack water, who lack food, who lack comfort and shelter. We're experiencing that in our bodies because we are all still deeply connected from our initial connection through that seed of life that gave birth to our universe. And so the deeper understandings that go with the wisdom traditions from the uh, indigenous perspective 
help us to understand uh, the place that we occupy within creation and how we work within that understanding in order to be able to create change not only in our lives, but in the larger scre- uh, scheme of reality that we are inhabiting. As you say, the umbilical cord with Mother Earth still throbs, but many of us can't feel it really consciously. Mm. Would you like to speak about one of your uh, awakenings, your Guatemala trip? many things that came up for me during that time. I had been going through some transformational processes before I even went on that trip and had wandered away from real active participation in my own spiritual life for a period of time and was just starting to move back in that direction. And so when I went on this trip, I was right to have an experience um, that connected me back to, excuse me, those spiritual truths that I had been wandering away from in some ways. And so I um, went to Guatemala and we went to a ceremony in uh, one of the mountain towns there with people from 25 different Mayan communities. There were Um, medicine people from all of those different communities who brought with them gifts for us, including food to share with us. And, you know, I, of course, accepted gratefully what they had to offer. And after the ceremony that we had, every time I closed my eyes, um, and I don't know if I relay the full story of this in the book, uh, every time I closed my eyes, I could see through the eyes of the jaguar. And so when my eyes would close, I could see the eyes of the jaguar. And so it was disrupting my sleep. That was the first piece of, of um, this experience that showed up for me. Uh, and then when I got back home, a period after I got back home, I discovered that I was very, very sick and couldn't figure out what it was that was causing the symptoms that I was having and went for about 18 months and couldn't figure out what it was that was going on in my body. I spent thousands of dollars with different doctors and tried to, you know, determine the course. At one point in time, I believed I was truly going to die. Uh, This illness pretty much took over my life. I lost all my energy. My um, digestion was was a mess. I had heart palpitations. But at the same time that that was happening, there were other senses that were waking up within me. I started recognizing, once again, something that I hadn't done since I was much younger, the voices of spirit speaking to me. So my hearing attuned to a new vibration. I started recognizing that there were things appearing within the world around me that I had never seen. You know, these elements of existence that sit just beyond our common vision. 
that we miss out on when we're not attuned. So all of these other things were sharpening in regard to my sensory abilities at the same time that it felt like my body was falling apart. And so I went to this healing workshop. It was actually a healing through writing workshop, and it was kind of this last-ditch effort uh, with someone who was visiting from a different place. The woman is actually Nawa and Kickapoo, Nawa from uh, from Mexico and, and Kickapoo from Texas, and she is a powerful healer. Uh, her name is Patricia. She's actually now a very, very dear friend of mine and has been since then. Uh, when she held my hand during that ceremony, she looked at me and asked me if I had been to that specific place in Guatemala. And I said that I had, and I was surprised. And she said, oh, you have this particular parasite. I recognize the vibration of it in your in your energy field. So just from holding my hand, she was able to pick up the vibration of that particular parasite, and she was the one that set me on the path toward healing. But within the process of this healing, and after struggling with this illness for about a year, year and a half, uh, and trying so hard to escape the experience, I remembered something that one of my guides had taught me prior about trying to run away from the things that were happening to us rather than to look at them as opportunities for growth and and for spiritual development. So I started to sink into this experience and to look closely at what that experience was teaching me. How is it illuminating or expanding or shifting my current path? And uh, once I started to do that, everything started to shift. You know, I, I started to connect with my breath and my breath and my awareness. I started to connect with Um, specific parts of my body. I started to recognize that there were things that I could do to connect on a much deeper level with my body. I started to recognize that the things that seemed so um, frightening and so devastating in relation to my health at that time were actually opportunities for me to be quiet and to reconnect once again with the voice of spirit. And so I had been moving at such a fast pace in my life that this experience really brought me down almost to a a stop, you know, this real uh, conscious pause period in my life for about 18 months where I was forced to be still. And during that time, I started to connect with the core truth and recognize the distinction between that truth and my illusion connected to that illness, but also the illusions connected to the way that I engage the world. And so, you know, once I started to become comfortable with that, once I sank into the experience and started looking for the lesson or the blessing within it, um, I began to be able to move back into my life almost effortlessly without much conscious thought. I started to enjoy the time that I had with my children in a new way. I started to appreciate the simple things that we take for granted in our lives, like the ability to get up and to move our bodies in certain ways. And so, you know, there were so many things that transpired. And so oftentimes I think that when we have experiences in our lives that seem incredibly negative, those are the times when we have the greatest opportunities for growth because movement is created by friction. And so having to go through that experience, this 
profoundly painful and very frightening experience. I was, you know, a very young woman in my 20s at the time and had small children and, and didn't know whether I was going to live or whether I was going to die um, and really caught up in that fear element of it. I missed all of the other beauty that was present there where I had been trying to reconnect spiritually in my life. I had made a conscious choice to begin to reconnect spiritually in my life. And so the universe came in with a uh, sledgehammer and said, okay, let's, uh, let's give you this opportunity and let's hit the pause button in your life so that you really have the opportunity to sink in here and to reconnect with what is true on the most base level. And so that experience that I had um, in Guatemala and in the you know, time that followed was really, really powerful for me. And at the end of that experience, I was sitting in the bath one, one morning after I had taken my kids to school, and the window was open because it was a beautiful, warm day, and a hummingbird came in, flew in the window, and hovered right above my chest mm-hmm. for about a full minute, and then, um, you know, turned around and flew back out the window. And it was almost as if that hummingbird was coming in to recalibrate my heart because I had integrated that lesson. And that was like the turning point for me, just like seeing through the the flashes of green through the eyes of that jaguar at the beginning were the beginning point of that lesson for me. The hummingbird came to signal the end point of that particular lesson for me. So, you know, making those connections with the natural world and allowing yourself to be open to and to be harmonized with the vibrational frequencies that exist throughout the entire creation gives us opportunity to amplify our own experience here in these bodies during this lifetime. Is that part of what you mean when you say the greatest tragedy that can befall us is to go unimagined? That's one of my favorite quotes by a Kiowa author named N. Scott Mamaday. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, what Mamaday says in that quote is that we are what we imagine. Our very existence consists in our imagination of ourselves. Our best destiny is to imagine at least completely who and what and that we are. The greatest tragedy that can befall us is to go unimagined. And so that means so many things to me. Because as indigenous people, we have gone unimagined in the minds and the eyes of the larger society for centuries because others have defined us. We have not been able to come forward other than in really distinct kind of uh, diminished ways. Uh, it's okay to look at Native people dressed up and dancing. It's okay to hear uh, them have, you know, these warm quotes about the environment or about connectivity, but we've never been allowed to explain ourselves on a deeper level. We've never been allowed to talk about the things we know to be true in relation to our own understanding of who we are in connection to the rest of life. And so even if you look at this whole world of spiritual self-help, there are very few indigenous speakers within that realm. Uh, most of the people that you see out there who are talking about and teaching about indigenous ways of being are non-native people. They're people who have learned from indigenous people, but the indigenous people are still denied the opportunity to speak on their own behalf and to come forward and to share in a way that's meaningful to them. Don Miguel Ruiz is one of the 
exceptions to that rule. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe one of the only exceptions to that rule in the mainstream right now. And so when um, we were doing this, we do this work called repatriation. And so one of the, uh, what repatriation is, is uh, taking the remains of our ancestors from these really horrific museum displays or other places and bringing those ancestors home and, and laying them to rest in a really honorable way with the rest of their people, you know, yes. where they belong. Yes. And those ancestors always speak to us during that process, you know, when we're praying with them, when we're in ceremony with them, leading up to their reburial, there's always some message that comes through. And one of my friends was telling a story about a young woman who had volunteered because we never leave them alone from the time we pick them up until the time that the reburial ceremony is done. There's somebody always with them, praying with them. Uh, This young woman was sitting with one of these ancestors overnight, and he kept telling her the same phrase over and over and over again. And when the others came back in the morning, she said, he kept saying this to me over and over again, and I couldn't quite understand what he was saying. I only could understand a few words. And so the oldest woman that was there said, that sounds like the way that the language sounded when I was a little girl, the way that the elders used to speak when I was a little girl, you know, because language shifts and evolves. Mm -hmm. And so they went to the oldest speaker in the community and they asked that person, do you know what this means? And she said, what he was telling you was, we dreamed you into the future. And so, you know, we are the dream of the ancestors come to life. And so when we think about how we imagine ourselves Mm -hmm. and our responsibility toward imagining future generations into being, uh, we have to be able to get to this understanding of who we are in our natural state of being. Because there's all of these ideas about what normal looks like. You know, we all have these concepts of normalcy. And those concepts of normalcy have unfolded as a result of the interactions between the different groups within society. You know, they've unraveled under this hierarchical illusion brought on by colonization oftentimes. And so our idea of normalcy is tied to these ways of being that are unnatural. And so how do we move away from what we've constructed as normal back to a more natural state of being that is tied to life rather than disconnected and detached from life and begin to imagine from that natural state of being where the umbilical cord, like you said, is still connected and throbbing with life in relation to Mother Earth and imagine new generations into being from that place not only so that they have the right to exist, but so that they can inhabit and inherit a world that is capable of sustaining their lives in a dignified way. So when we think about the power of imagination, the power that we have to be able to create the reality in which we live, our responsibility towards imagining ourselves and then manifesting that imagination into being is critical to the sustaining of life. And so we have to be able to imagine who are we, not only as individuals, but as a species, who are we in our best possible form? And then we have to hold that image 
and breathe life into it until it begins to exist in form so that we can provide something for the future generations to step into as flesh and blood. Um, so when I think about, you know, how we imagine ourselves, who and what and that we are, that that role of imagination of creating a new reality for us all to step into together um, requires our collective imagining of our best possible selves and bringing those selves into form. You speak about group, you, you have a chapter called Group Trauma, Grief Trauma and Intimacy. And so I was, I was feeling that perhaps Standing Rock was a moment of intimacy between humans here in this place. You know, the, um, the stand that took place at Standing Rock was really the fulfillment of a crazy horse prophecy. So in 1877, Crazy Horse went to ceremony with Sitting Bull. And in that ceremony, Crazy Horse had a vision. And the specifics of that vision were written down and captured so that they could be saved because it was viewed as being so important. And what Crazy Horse said during that time was this, quote, Upon suffering, beyond suffering, the red nation shall rise again, and it shall be a blessing for a sick world, a world filled with broken promises, selfishness, and separations, a world longing for light again. I see a time of seven generations with all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life and the whole earth will become one circle again. In that day, there will be those among the Lakota who will carry knowledge and understanding of unity among all living things. And the young white ones will come to those of my people and ask for this wisdom. I salute the light within your eyes where the whole universe dwells. For when you are at that center within you, and I am at that place within me, we shall be as one, end quote. And so the stand-up standing rock was literally a representation of Crazy Horse's prophecy, where the people who are living there today, the young people who started that stand with a walk that they did to protect that land, were the seventh generation of Crazy Horse. And they created this movement for the protection of life, that others from all over the world came to join because they honored the way that that stand was taking place. It was a stand that honored the sacredness of life so that the people who were present there at Standing Rock maintained their peaceful, prayerful stance. Um, in our community, in the Wabanaki tradition, we have a word called samogness. And that's one of the words that is in our, our warrior repertoire. And what Samognus is, is it's holding back the tide of harm that is coming towards you without harming the other. And so you're standing in protection of life without harming the lives of others in recognition that all life is sacred and that you can't stand for the sacredness of life and harm life at the same time. And so the importance of the imagery, the imprint, the vibration of that peaceful, 
prayerful stance to honor life, the sacred life-giving waters that we all rely upon to sustain our lives, that, that importance of that imagery connected to what happened at Standing Rock, because Standing Rock was just the beginning. Standing Rock was only a seed. Um, and so what happened there has now spread all over the world, really. There are people who came to Standing Rock from all over the world to stand with the sacred water protectors there to learn how to live with one another in a peaceful, prayerful way. The conflicts that erupted there were addressed in a spiritual and sacred manner. There were some conflicts, of course, but considering that at the peak time, uh, when I was at the camp uh, right before the Army Corps said that it would not grant the permit, that weekend that that was going on, there were 15,000 people at that camp in the dead of winter. Hmm. And it was rough. It was rough living. But everybody that was there had this spirit of prayerfulness, this attitude of recognizing that what you were standing for was much bigger than yourself, that you were truly standing for the protection of life, not only in a real distinct physical way, but also in a much larger spiritual and symbolic way that sent a message out to the rest of the world that it is our responsibility to stand for life. It is our responsibility to show up and to be the ones who can say, this is not the way that we should be living, and there is something else that we need to aspire toward if we hope to survive and to retain the right that we have to live here on Mother Earth. And so Standing Rock was important in so many really powerful ways in relation to the prophecy, in relation to the imagery and the peaceful, prayerful way that it was managed, and in relation to our understanding of the sacredness of the water that we all rely upon to live. Thank you so much. We were coming around here to the end of our conversation for today and I uh, would like to ask you in closing if you would you have spoken about what we can do in um, in your words about imagination but if you would speak about some things we can do to um, to restore ourselves with each other? Well, I think that that's a big question, and there are so many different directions that that we could go uh, in relation to that. But I think that, you know, one of the primary things that people need to do is to start questioning any thoughts that they have that are connected to any type of superiority, hierarchy, or domination over any element of life no matter what it is, whenever those thoughts come up, start questioning where do they come from? You know, are they true? And start looking at that because that's really at the core of our um, discord and disharmony in the world is these false beliefs that are connected to otherness and um, hierarchy and separation. So that's, you know, that's one thing that can be done that um, everybody can do that in relation to their individual lives, in relation to whatever groups or organizations they're connected to, what are the core values that are attached to those things that are connected to those ideas. 
the decolonization of our minds, also start looking at how do you assign value. And so when we look at the world, the way that we assign value is all attached to a commo- uh, you know, an economy. And so we think about even when somebody's single, they say that they're on the market. So even our most personal relationships have been commodified and made into a marketable, saleable product in this market, even the way that we view ourselves. So looking at how do you assign value and is profit an economy and the things that have framed this whole way of being that is destroying life, uh, is your sense of value tied to that structure and how can you shift that sense of value and realign it with life and then start adjusting the ways that you're living your life to be in alignment with this new value structure that is connected to the sustaining of life and the, and the uh, continuation of life and the valuing of life as a sacred element that sits at the very top of our value structure. So looking at those things. And then I talk about four practical pillars within the book of water sovereignty, food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, and educational sovereignty. These are the four major ways that we're continuing to be colonized right now. They say that we live in a post-colonial era, but it's simply not true. We're being commodified in relation to our water, you know, colonized in relation to our water, where we're in a position where we're only going to be able to have access to clean water if we buy it, which is necessary to sustain our lives. Uh, The same with our ability to be able to grow and share food in our own communities. There's all these regulations cropping up that are colonizing our food production. Our energy production, there's no doubt in anybody's mind about the colonization of energy. And also the education of our children. Is it creating critical, creative problem solvers? People have, have the ability to think in a way that's going to lead to solutions Or are we only training our children to be obedient cogs in the wheel of the status quo? And so we have to really reclaim those specific areas right now if we hope to be able to create change. And that, you know, discussion about that could be a whole series of shows in itself. But, you know, in a nutshell, looking at those things, this idea of otherness, uh, the way that we assign value and those four pillars of being sovereign and self-determined human beings are really a good place for us to start looking at uh, how we live our lives, where we are now, how we got here, and how we can move in a way that's going to move us back toward life and away from this path of destruction that we're currently on. I want to thank you very, very much for honoring us with your presence and uh, hope that uh, we can meet again. Uh, well, in our language, we say kachiwili one, heartfelt thanks, and basilda and Mabamuk, you know, for all of our relations, because we're all related. Uh, thank you so much. It's been an incredible honor to be able to share this time with you. <laughs>